Welcome to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy, Houston's Sober High School. Twice monthly, we join recovery advocates, industry-leading experts, and medical professionals to discuss topics about adolescent addiction, the effects of social media, and what it means to be a teenager in this day and age. The goal of this podcast is to create a space where professionals can come together, share insights gleaned from working with teens and their families. We also strive to be a resource for parents with teens recovering from substance use disorder with care, compassion, respect, and rigor. We believe that although it may be hard to see it now, something different is possible. This is a way through. Hey, everyone. My name is Andrew Warren. I am the admissions specialist here at Archway. Hello, everyone. My name is Obadiah Pendleton. I'm a recovery coach here at Archway. Awesome. And we're here with Keenan Williams, and we're very happy to have him. Keenan is an entrepreneur. He's a political activist. He's a motivational speaker. And he also has an awesome story of transformation. And he's here to talk to us about that. And we're very excited. So thanks again, Keenan, for being here. Thank you, guys. Thank you guys for having me. I'm honored. In conversations we had off camera, one of the things that was discussed was your experience as a young person in football. And so I'm curious, as someone who participated in organized sports at a certain level, what impact did that have on your lifestyle as a teenager and what you were and weren't exposed to and social relationships? Can you talk to us a little bit about what impact football had on your life? I mean, so so football had definitely had its had the good side, uh, meaning that I learned discipline through football. Uh, It gave me an opportunity to uh, exert some of my energy, my frustrations. My pains that I had going on at home, I could take it to the football field. And because I could take it there, it was it was a healthy place to release those things. So it made me very good at football because I had a lot of anger inside. Right. But it also taught me discipline. And then I had fun. And, and in football, you know, you build relationships, you you meet people, you know, you go uh, out of town to play, you go to parties, you know. It has, a, a, listen, a, a lot of great aspects to it. However, there's another side uh, that people have to understand, and that is you can't build your life around something that's not guaranteed. Uh, and so I built my life around that because no one ever shared the importance of education. No one ever shared another part of the menu. You know, it's like when you go into a restaurant, you know it's a steakhouse, but you don't know what the sides are until someone hands you the menu. No one ever handed me a different menu. They just said, this is a steakhouse. And football was that steakhouse for me. Uh, it's very unfortunate that a lot of times we uh, find our heroes in places like football. And there's nothing wrong with football. There's nothing wrong with having a hero as a football player. Uh, it could just become detrimental if that's the only hero you have. Because when football is gone, that hero is gone. And then there comes frustration. There comes disappointment. There comes a loss of direction, a loss of fulfillment, a loss of focus. So in doing You know, in that time, it's very important for people to understand the importance of education, the importance of having other heroes, because you show me your hero, I'll show you your future, right? You show me your hero, I'll show you your future. You're going to mimic yourself after the person that you look up to. You're going to do the things that they've done. So when football was shattered in my life and I could no longer play football, then who was my hero? My hero, I didn't have any more heroes. I I ended up going to a hero that I saw in the corner, which was gaming. And you know? Yeah, well said. And can you tell us a little bit about when you went from 
seeing this future in football to it, as you mentioned, shattering that sort of goal. Well, it, all happened, it, it all happened in one day. I mean, my senior year in high school, uh, being a, you know, preseason blue chipper, you know, on my way to being a high school football All-American, probably 10 colleges there to watch me play my very first game. Didn't, drug, didn't do drugs. I didn't drink. I did nothing to focus on football. I stayed at the practice field or stayed in the gym longer than anyone else because I didn't want to go home because at home was very toxic. And so the toxicity at my house was released on the football field. But I got hurt my senior year, first game of the year, and had total reconstruction of my knee. So I'm lying in the hospital and the doctor walks in, Dr. Charles Vavrick. I'll never forget this guy's name. I need to look this guy up, matter of fact, see if he's still around. And I want to share with him the way he shared it with me was not the right way. <laughs> right. So <laughs> because he's just a doctor, he's not thinking this is my life. So he walks in and he says, uh, I want you to know you can never play football again. And um, you'll have to do some follow up on this day, this day, this day. And he walks out. Now, for him, that was a sentence, a paragraph. But for me, it was a life that was shattered. And while in doing that, you know, my friends had come up back and forth. But my parents never visited me at the hospital. So I was perplexed as to why I'm in the hospital. Football careers ended. My parents did visit me. Uh, so my friends ended up taking me home a few days later. I get there. I'm on the couch. My mother walks in the house. She looks at me and she says, sorry, I didn't visit you when you're in the hospital. Uh, your father and I are getting a divorce. I'm afraid he's going to hurt me, so I have to get some clothes and leave. And she leaves out the door. So here's a 17-year-old young man on a couch in the house alone by himself. What, Even though my family was toxic, there were some good parts to my family. Please understand that. My father was a great provider. He was just a horrible husband, right? Uh, my mother, because they, they were young. They didn't know. No one had ever poured into them how to be a parent, how to be a good husband, how to be a good mother. So I'm laying on the couch at 17 years. Football is gone. My family structure is gone. And no one's handing me a different menu. So I was hurt. I was angry. I was frustrated. I didn't know what to do. So I quit high school. And I quit high school with just a few weeks left. And I joined a gang. Uh, because, you know, growing up in the hood, uh, just in case anyone doesn't understand, the hood is where the Black people were at the time. You know, uh, neighborhoods, white people. The hood was the black people, right? Ebonical translation sometimes in that sense. <laughs> so, you know, in, 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 the, you know, in the hood, we had, there were just a few heroes. And most of those heroes are football players or basketball players. And then there's another hero, they call him Superfly, you know, who sells cocaine to get out of the hood, who drives a Cadillac, who has the beautiful women, but his whole goal is to get out. But the point is that, or the, the trick is that he would never get out of that lifestyle that he was caught up in. So, I, I left high school and I joined a gang. And I don't tell the gang that I joined because I don't glorify gangs, I glorify God. So the name of the gang is not relevant to me or anyone else. So when I joined a gang, because they told me they would be family. They told me that they would look after me. They told me that everything would be okay. They understood my situation. They understood my, you know, my obstacles. And so joining that gang from in 1986, from 1986 to 93, became very hard because I got in, I started selling crack cocaine. That's when crack cocaine hit, hit the hood. It was in 1986. So I started selling cocaine. And by 1988, I started using it. Had never done a drug in my life. Not even smoked a joint. I did crack cocaine with some girls one time that were here out of town. And I got hooked the very first time I did. Can you tell us about, from your perspective, the impact in 1986, 87, 88 that crack had on? Destroyed the communities. It destroyed because you, if something hit that no one had ever experienced, uh, it destroyed the families, it destroyed 
small things like, you know, sometimes we don't think about it. You got to think, you know, back in the 70s, in these communities, the yards were nice. There was there was a pride in the community of we're free. Let's do the right thing. Let's live a better life. Let's let's gain. There was no real victim mentalities going on. When crack cocaine hit, I watched yards, the grass start growing higher. I watched the screen stop being on windows. I watched the front door stop door having door handles because moms got hooked, dads got hooked, brothers got hooked, sisters got hooked. It began to spread very rapidly in the community and it destroyed it destroyed the hood. It destroyed the black community. I asked this, I feel like kind of knowing the answer, but at that time in the late 80s, mid to late 80s, where does someone with a drug problem go? Or what do the outsiders like family members when they see a loved one now using something like crack, where did, what do they do? What, what, it was, it was such, they tried? It was such a devastation. People really didn't know what to do with it. It, it wasn't like heroin. It wasn't like powdered cocaine. It wasn't like marijuana. People were crack monsters. <laughs> you know, before then, you could leave your door open. You could leave your car door. When crack cocaine hit the neighborhoods, you couldn't do that anymore. People turned into crack monsters because that thing was a driving force like no other. It made you want to serve it every single day. You wake up thinking about it. You go to bed thinking about it. You, you, you don't even, you give everything up for it. It becomes your God. You don't need women. Women don't need men. You don't need your families. Men don't need wives. Wives don't need husbands anymore. You get married to that drug, okay? It totally consumes your life. Probably one of the most dangerous drugs that's ever hit the world. It's not like fentanyl where it just kills you, but it just literally destroys everything about you. And so, you know, by 19, when I got hooked on that from 80, let's say 88 to 93, getting hooked on that, I got, I became homeless, you know, and I was sleeping on, on, on the corners. I was sleeping in houses with no lights, no gas, no water. I was sleeping in places that I could never imagine. I was periodically standing at the Salvation Army so I could take a shower. I didn't look in the mirror from 1987, probably around 1987. I didn't look in the mirror until I was in prison. And I didn't go to prison until 1993. Because who wants to see who they never thought they would be? Does that make sense? Yeah. I would never, I could never look in the mirror and see the person that I had become because on the inside, I was still hurting. Even though I was doing the drugs, I was doing the crazy things. On the inside, Keenan Williams was still in there. And there were times where I would be smoking crack cocaine and crying and saying, why me? You know, God, why is this happening? You know, if you are God, where are you? You know, why are you allowing this to happen to me? All I want to do is be a professional football player. How many people raises their hand in the third grade and say, I want to be a cranky? No one does, you know? So from 86 to 93, I was shot over six times because I started robbing drug houses. You know, I started robbing dope dealers because they had to crack cocaine. So I was an idiot. That's what I wanted. You know, were, were you still involved with the gang or had you pretty much been? I was always involved with the gang. But, you know, when you're on crack cocaine, that is your gang. OK, you know, you're not involved anymore in the meetings. You're not doing what they're doing, because, again, nothing else matters but that drug at that point. So my life was consumed with the drug, you know. There were times I didn't take a shower for two or three months at a time just until I could. my grandmother would come and find me or my aunt or my mom would come and find me periodically and, you know, bring me uh, to a certain place where I could clean up and everything. And then I'd go right back out because I was hooked. You know, I didn't know how to come off of it, you know. And, and you know, to be honest with you, there were so many people, you know, you, you, I remember people pulling up and seeing me on the corner, people going to work at five o'clock in the morning. I'm just out here, man, still chasing crack cocaine. And people would say mean things like, go get a life, go get a job, 
quit doing drugs. And I'm saying in my mind, well, tell me how to do that. <laughs> because if I knew how to do that, I wouldn't be here, right? So, so you mentioned the Salvation Army as at least a place to go shower, if nothing else. At that time, what were some of the, I guess, thoughts like, okay, I could go here, or this person could help, or this organization might help? What were some I of the didn't have that. that? You don't have that because there's so much guilt and shame. There's so much embarrassment. You know, when you're in that position, you're not thinking about who can help you. You just know the Salvation Army is a place you can go. They're not asking you to change. They're going to give you some food. You can take a shower. And the next day you leave. You know, so you can hide in places like that and not have to deal with who you've become. So it was easy. I didn't I didn't like Christians back then. I hated Christians back then because on Sundays is when I knew people were going to church because they had the nice clothes on. Uh, but those same people that were going to church were the same people that were mean to me. Same people that looked down a certain way or they locked the doors or they would say things. And so those people, to me, I didn't know God. I had never read the Bible in my life. They represented who God was. And so I said I would never become a Christian. I hated Christian people. I didn't like them. They were mean. You know, they go to this place and they do all the worship and they act like everything's great. And then they come out and they're mean to people. You know, I didn't get that. So I never wanted to become a Christian. Ever. I vow never to become a Let me ask you, Kenneth. You are like a lot of people who, you know, crack or any types of drugs just, you know, devastates their life. And then yeah. we see the transition from what was a, a good, hopeful life to now this devastation of your life. And then you transitioned from that to where? I mean, eventually what happened where you turned around, your life began to, to turn around? I mean, when I hit prison, you know, when I hit okay. prison in 93, uh, the first four years were very hard. I didn't, didn't, nothing happened the first four years. I just hit prison and I was another ex-fellow. You know, I remember hitting prison and the warden saying to me, okay, you know, they have this board and then there's doctors, there's psychologists, there's teachers, there's counselors, and they're talking to you. They're talking not necessarily to you, but they're talking about me. Mm-hmm. And I remember hitting prison and I remember the warden saying, oh, well, he's been arrested because I was arrested over 45 times. Oh, he's been arrested over 45. He's been arrested 45 times in and out. It was a matter of time before he gets got here. He'll probably be in and out. And then the doctor says, yeah, it shows you he's been on crack cocaine, drug. His brain's probably fried. So we need to get him in into the infirmary and get some medication for his mental stability. Uh, and then someone else there dresses, uh, yeah, definitely counseling. And then someone else says, okay, well, he's a gang member, so he can't go here. We have to put him on this side of the unit with the rest of the gang member. You know, a lot of, you're nobody, now you're here, and there's no more hope for you. That's what I heard when I hit there. So four years in, you know, there's, there's a couple of ministries that used to come in there. And one of them was Bill Glass Ministries that used to come in. Man, there's this little bit short, old, uh, old white guy. I never went out to see because they would always have this big tent and stuff, you know, but I never went out there. And he'd always come in that dorm and he said, you know, just want you to know that I love you. And Jesus loves you. And what's your name? I said, listen, I don't believe in the Jesus stuff. You know, I don't want to hear all of that. He said, okay, I'm not going to preach to you. I just want you to know that I love you. And I said, well, if, if, if you love me and Jesus loved me, then why, where were you guys when I was going through what I was going through? Why didn't someone else reach out to help me? Why am I having to go through this in my life, you know? And he said, well, I can't explain everything, but I can tell you this much. He loves you. Long story short, this guy comes to my cell like three years in a row. Okay. He's freaking consistent with fighting me. You know, when I knew that they were there, I'd be like, man, I'm going in my cell, lock the door. I'm going to act like I'm asleep. This guy would come to the cell and knock on the door. Yeah. Williams, we're here. How are you? Just want you to know I love 
I was like, man, this dude is crazy, you know? But only, but internally, he was expressing something to me, and that he was telling me I loved it, that he loved me. My father never told me he loved me until I was 51 years old, 55 now. Still a great dad. Nothing bad to say about my dad. He's a great provider. So four years in, uh, I got put in the cell by myself because we had a riot and people got hurt. So when a riot happens, they lock you up and add say, you're a gang member. They want to find out what's going on. Who's behind it? What gang it is? Is it over? What can we do to rectify it? And so I'm in there. And after a few days, I had a conversation with God. You know, they turned the lights off about 10 o'clock at night. And then they turned the lights on back again at four o'clock because they bring breakfast in at four. Why they give you breakfast at four in the morning? I have no idea. That doesn't make sense to me, right? Never figured that part. Yeah. Conversation with God, lights go out. I'm really talking. I'm expressing everything. And I felt so much better. So I laid down and the lights came on. I'm like, okay, maybe they're getting ready to come get me out of here. But then they opened the door and they slapped the breakfast in. I'm like, why are they serving us breakfast so early? I'm thinking I've been talking like 30 minutes. Man, I talked for six hours. <laughs> like six hours. All day I'm trying to figure out where the time. I said, okay, maybe I fell asleep. And I didn't know it. Maybe, because there's no clock in there. There's, you know, I couldn't figure out where the, how I could talk for that long. But it felt so good because he didn't judge me. He didn't condemn me. He didn't criticize me. And he didn't tell me to shut up. <laughs> he let me talk. And so the next day I said, man, I'm going to do that again. That felt pretty good, you know? And I'm timing it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to wait till these lights go out this time because that's what happened the last time. <laughs> you know? And uh, I, I, you know, I'm just, I'm like a creature of habit. I'm a pattern. If it works, I'm sticking with it. So the lights go out. I start talking to him. And the craziest thing, prior to, I didn't say this part. Prior to that, maybe six, seven months prior to that, I had changed my name to Ishmael Atabrahi to a Muslim because I, I like the way the Muslims carried themselves. Bible, dignity, brotherhood, man, they stuck real close together. That was family. They looked really family oriented. So I changed my name, tried it, but it didn't work for me. It was no good. So this night, I'm talking to God and I said, man, you know, I'm even willing to try the Jesus thing. That's what I need to do. Because I knew I was still built different. I still knew something was about me was different, right? Which there's something different about all of us. It's not that I was special. It's that God was letting me know that I made you different. So I, I said that I would be okay with Jesus. Little did I know I was praying a prayer of salvation, right? Man, I get baptized, filled with the Holy Spirit. I'm on fire in a cell and running around saying that Jesus lives, right? Because it invades me. And I don't know what it is. I, don't, I can't explain it to anyone. All I know is something took over and the guards are at the door when I start settling down with their shields and masks on and they're ready to run in because they think I've lost my mind. People get crazy back there all the time, right? And they kill themselves. They think I lost my mind. I'm like, man, I'm okay. I'm okay. All I know is Jesus is real. It's, it's something's inside of me. I can't control it. So I calm down. They let me out. Ironically, they let me out the next day. I left the gangs. I said, I'm done. I grabbed a Bible. I started reading my Bible. I had never read a Bible. So I asked guys, what do you start reading? You know? And when I started reading, I started reading very differently. I started reading and, and I got very personal with it. Uh, so for the next two years, I read 248 books. I began to educate myself because when I read about Moses, I realized that Moses could write all of the 248 books in two years. Years, 248 books. Wow. I stopped watching television. I stopped having conversations. I stopped. Well, I had conversations, but it was about God. I stopped playing dominoes. I stopped playing cards. I stopped wasting time. I realized that education would be the key to my success because Romans 12 and 2 said, be not conformed, but be transformed by the realm of your mind. And, and I had to finish reading that because said, so that you can prove 
what is the good and acceptable will of God. Can you talk about s- some of the more transformative books that you read during that time? Tell and us. I read, uh, I read books on Abraham Lincoln, read books on Frederick Douglass. Mm-hmm. Um, I read books on life skills. I read books, books on, I read anything that I could get my hands on just to detract the way that I was thinking because I wanted to begin to think differently. I read the, I didn't just read Bible. I didn't just read about God. I read all kinds of biographies. You know, I read about, I read Muslim books. I read about uh, Elijah Muhammad. I read Mahatma Gandhi. You know, I read all kinds of books. I would just read what I could get because I wanted to, I read in the scripture where it says, when he says, be not conformed to be transformed by the ring of your mind. It automatically connected me to Moses where I realized that Moses could write two thirds of the, the Old Testament because he was educated. So I decided that now Moses was educated. Why? Because Moses was born in Hebrew, but he was raised Egyptian. So he went to the best schools. He had the best education. He knew how to articulate. He knew how to think. He not only was born in Hebrew, but he knew how to move in the palace. Does that make sense? And then I looked in the New Testament, how Paul wrote two thirds of the New Testament. I said, okay, wait, why didn't Peter write two thirds of the New Testament? He was the cat that got off the boat, you know? You know, he's the one that chopped off the soldier's ear. And God was very clear to me. And he said, because Peter was uneducated. I said, okay, I got to get educated. So, and even Peter, first Peter one and first Peter two, Peter didn't write those. Mark, Mark wrote those for Peter. Yeah. And I said, no. And then I look at Paul and Paul said, I'm the Hebrews of all Hebrews. I'm the Sadducees of all said He went to the best schools. He went to the best colleges. He was well-educated. He knew the things that he knew and God could use him because of his education. That's why I stress education to people. Education creates an opportunity for you to have a capacity to where you're not limited to where you could be used in life. Mm. That's why education is important. So uh, I, I got on that. You know, so is a man thinking, so is he. So I tell people, you never have to tell me who you are. You'll always act like the person you think you are anyway. Right. So all I got to do is watch you. You know, I learned that a man would always live up to the expectations by which he saw himself. The thing is, is that he would live beneath the way he saw himself. So you always act like the person you think you are. I needed to learn how to think differently about me. So I took on a new identity. I took on the identity of Christ. He says, old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. You're a new creature created in Christ Jesus. And when I looked in the Hebrew and the Greek, new meant new. That means that there was nothing old about it. And so I wanted to grab a hold of a newness of life. And education was a key for that. Does that make sense? Sure. Yeah. 228 books, two years. Of course, there had to be some lifestyle changes. When did you, your life? Let me tell you. So when I'm reading these, when I was reading, I would read books. I studied a few kings and I studied some guys in politics. I started reading about Abraham Lincoln. I read about George Washington, George Washington Carver. I realized that these guys had a dignity about themselves. And so the most impact that really changed my actions is when I read in the Bible about Joseph. That's where everything really started to let me know that there's some things that I needed to do differently as far as my actions, my presentation, my walk, my talk, my eating habits. So Joseph went from the prison to the palace, right? But there was something that he did when he went from the prison to the palace and God showed it to me. It said that he did two things. He changed his clothes and he cut off his beard, Yeah. right? It made me understand that the next level has a protocol. If you don't know the protocol of the next level, you could never enter the door. So I said, what is the protocol of the next level of my life? I learned that through Joseph. I said, okay, if Joseph went to the prison, to the palace, I can go from the prison to the White House. But what am I going to do to go from the prison to the White House? 
I'm going to have to cut some things out of my life. He cut his beard. God said, you got to cut some things out of your life. He changed his clothes, said I had to change the way I was walking, change the way I was talking, change the way I was thinking. Man, I even learned how to walk different. I looked at Solomon and it says Solomon ascended. He walked into the temple and the queen of Sheba fainted when she saw it. I said, man, I need to walk like that dude right there, right? Because I had that super cool walk, you know, that huggy bear. You want to be cool. You want everyone to see you. I didn't want that for any. I didn't want people to see me for being cool. I wanted when people saw me, I wanted them to see the majestic of God inside of me. So I straightened up my posture. What I would eat at the in the cafeteria, the child is what they call them. They give you seven minutes, man. You eat like, you know, everybody's eating like crazy. So I said, okay, so I said, okay, one day I'm going to go to the White House. So I need to start eating like I'm eating with the dignitaries. So I changed my posture and I would take my time eating in prison because God began to share with me and show me Abraham Lincoln. He used a quote that Abraham Lincoln used that I use every single day of my life. Abraham Lincoln said, if I had 45 minutes to chop down a tree, I spend the first 30 minutes sharpening my eyes. That taught me preparation. That's why I say when preparation meets opportunity becomes a formula for success. People in America never fail because of a lack of opportunity. We only fail when we're unprepared when opportunity presents itself. So we have to prepare for what we visualize, right? I start acting though I was though I was not there, I started acting as though I was there. Did that make sense? Sure. When I cut things out of my life, I started cutting out wrong conversations. And then when I cut it out, God began to teach me about the law of subtraction. The law of subtraction is this, subtracting, especially being drugs, alcohol, and prison. The law of subtraction is the first thing you have to learn, right? Why did I learn the law of subtraction? Why did I call it a law? Because the law is something that doesn't change. I started subtracting wrong places, wrong people, wrong shows, wrong books, wrong thought processes. I had to subtract those things. As I subtracted those things, it also taught me to decide who I was not. Are you with me? If you can't decide who you're not, you'll never know who you are. So in the position of drugs, alcohol, you're in, you're at the school, you're, you're in a treatment facility. Listen, you cannot embrace in who, who you are until you decide who you're not. Because what happens is they try to grab a new identity and bring it into the old identity. You can't mix hot and cold water because it, it becomes lukewarm. Does that make sense? So I started operating in the law of subtraction. I said, okay, I'm not a drug dealer. I'm not a gang member. I'm not a crackhead. I'm not, uh, I'm not the guy on the corner. I'm none of those things. And while I was doing that, God began to teach me the importance of walking in integrity. Integrity in the prison, the same integrity in the, in the palace. Integrity is the same. Operating the law of preparation. I broke down preparation. Preparation means this, to prepare a ration. Sometimes we look over the small victories because it's small. Yeah. But that's where preparation needs to take place because you have to learn how to prepare a ration. That's why God says despise not small beginnings. The mustard seed is the smallest seed, but it becomes the greatest tree. So I begin preparation. I begin to prepare every ration that God gave. Every small victory, I would prepare it. Every, I took prison and used prison and turned it into my college. Does that make sense? I wrote, 100, I wrote over 150 letters to the warden because they wouldn't let me in school. I knew school was important. 150 letters. They never let me in school. And then one day, the warden's walking across the, the rec yard to the chow hall. Well, he's going to the offices wherever, but he's walking. And I saw him. And you know the warden's there because they get on radios. The guards start standing up straight. He's like the president in prison, man. Yeah. And then he wears his cowboy hat. This is big. Eclipse when he comes on the unit. <laughs> no sun. 
right? It's all hid behind his, his cowboy hat. I said, oh, man, there's Martin Jones. Now, I knew that was my opportunity because he was not responding to the letters. Man, I started going around the inmates because you got to walk in line one after another, right? You got to be in order, right? I start going around people. The guards yelling, Williams, what are you doing? Get back in line. Williams, come here. And I said, I can't. I got to get to Warden Jones. And I see them moving. And as they're moving, I'm moving closer to him. And I finally get close enough to him. And I yell his name real loud because I knew they were going to get, the guards going to get to me before I got to him. So I yelled his name real loud. You don't yell the warden's name. That's like a no-no. But I knew it was an opportunity that if I didn't seize the moment, I would probably never have that again. So I yell, Warden Jones, he turns around, the guards turn around. He looks at me. I said, Warden Jones. He said, Williams, I know who you are. If you don't write me any more letters, I'll let you in school. I said, yes, sir. That's all I wanted. <laughs> that indeed. Oh, wow. So that, moment, that moment taught me persistency hmm. and consistency. It taught me that when you move in a spirit of excellence, excellence demands a door when there is no door. Does that make sense? Excellence demands a door when there is no door. Excellence will create opportunities where there is no opportunity. The whole universe is looking for excellence because it was designed by the one who is excellent. So what was, if any, what were some of the aspects of your lifestyle or character defects that were difficult to give up to God or difficult to sort of grow out of? Were there any that did take a while to, to, to kind of step away. Oh yeah, no, of course. I mean, some of those things are like, I mean, get, let me just, let me think about that. I think the the thing that really takes the longest is when you're really willing to give up who you were, hmm. who you were, because when you go into the subtraction and you hit that place where, okay, you're clean, it's very easy to live off of who you were and not who you are. Does that make sense? Yeah. There are people right now that I hear telling stories about who they were 40 years ago. And they're still living off of 40 years ago mm-hmm. and they have nothing going on now. So I had to let go of who I was totally, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And I had to embrace where I was and who I am now. I just want to say, it's a great opportunity. So you went from prisoner to, we talked about maybe some, some prison reform, going back to the prison and doing some work with uh, fellow prisoners and changing some of the laws surrounding that. Tell us a little bit about how you made that transition. Okay, give me give me one at a time, because you, you put a few things in there. So which, give me, give me the one you want me to put in first. Prison reform. Okay, so prison reform. This is the importance of prison reform. There are things that go on in prison. Some of the, I'm going to start with the first part of prison reform, something I did right before COVID hits. Before COVID hit, I got with the state of Texas, and I actually had a conference that I was a part of in Galveston, Texas. And that conference involved all of the wardens of the state of Texas, all of the majors and all the heads of paroles and supervisors in the state of Texas was at that conference. I started with them. I had to share with them the importance of what they say, the way they see people affects the change that that person has while they're in prison. This is why I say that. If you see a man for who he is, he becomes worse. But if you see him for who he could be, he might become what he should be. That's good. So the programs in prison, prison system itself is designed to embrace who you are and not who you could be. Are you with me? Does that make sense? Even the classes embrace who you are and they're not designed to, to embrace you for who you could be. Because if you don't set 
the goal high for people who are living low. They'll never hit it. Does that make sense? You know, Les Brown worded it simply. He says, look, I aim for the moon because if I miss the moon, at least I land amongst the stars. Prison doesn't aim for the moon. Prison aims for the ground. So the classes are not there to build you up. The mentalities of the guards, the mentality of the warriors. I dealt with the way they saw people. I dealt with the attitude. And my goal was to bring them hope. And by the way, when I had that, uh, when I did the conference there, my old warden was at the conference. Wow. Walks up, hugs me, and he's crying. Wow. So I gave him hope. Without hope, hope, hopeless people do hopeless things. It doesn't matter what position they're in. And a lot of times because of the prison system, it's, it sees the recidivism and the same guy coming in, coming out, coming out. They give up hope on that guy. So they're not putting anything in place to build him up. They're putting everything in place to hold him there. Does that make sense? So for prison reform, for me, it's not just what goes on in the prison. It's the attitude of the people who run the prison, the way they speak down on the inmates. You can't keep doing that. That's more mental abuse. The other part is while in prison, I'm trying to get them to institute credit repair, financial literacy classes. Okay, things that are going to be applicable to these guys that they can work on while they're there. So that when they come out, it makes the transition a lot easier because they get out and they go right back into the same community that they lived in because they can't go anywhere else and live. They have bad credit. They got no money, $50 on the bus to get. Well, what happens? What happens if we start working on them in prison so that when they come out, they can transition? Let's just say they're an electrician while they're in prison. What if while they're in prison, I get them hired from there to here so that when they come out, I have an employer already waiting to bring, to hire him when he comes out because he knows the date he's coming out. He's already got a job waiting on him. We've already worked on his credit while he's in there. We've already poured into his life and given him life skill classes. We're already putting him in a position to where he can have counseling when he gets out. Counseling is very important. A lot of the guys I have found in, in you know the, the prison reform system is very tainted in the fact that it doesn't do a lot of counseling, okay? What happens is, these guys get out, they've been in there five, six, seven, eight, nine years, because I stayed in there six years, a little over six years. They get out, they're doing good, and then all of a sudden they run into an issue because they don't know how to handle the issue. They start, they run back to the pain that sent them to prison the first time. So now they're acting out of that pain or that trauma that has never been healed. Mm-hmm. So we need counseling in there. We've got to have some real counseling to deal with the trauma. Man, some of these guys have been, people have been molested. Parents have beat them. They've been shot, you know, whatever the thing may be. If we're not dealing with that while they're in prison, when they get out, when they get out, they're bringing that out with them. So we're setting them up for failure rather than setting them up for success. Let's deal with the trauma. Drugs and alcohol are not the root of any problem. I tell guys in prison that all the time. Drugs, alcohol, crime is not the root of your problem. It's the fruit of the root. The fruit has to go away when you kill the root. A tree can't produce fruit if the root is dead. Let's sit down and let's find out what the root of your issue is. Okay, man, you're on drugs, but guess what? The root of your issue is some pain that happened when you're five years old. Let's deal with that because now that tree that has been producing the fruit of drugs and alcohol is now dead. All of this stuff needs to be handled in prison. So when these guys get out, they can transition in a very healthy way. Was was the transportation that took place while you were incarcerated was that, did that contribute to you figuring out your route or did you figure out your route later on? I figured out my route while I was in there. Right. I figured it out through reading the Bible and just hanging out with God. And, and I, it's not because I'm special. 
I, I believe that God allowed me to figure it out so I could help other people. So the, with the broken reform system, our uh, penal system, the way it is now, you get out of prison. They don't dump a whole lot of money in your pocket to get out in the neighborhood. That's, you, you, you mentioned money. Let's, let's go to that. Let's mention the money bar. Sure. So the other so thing that I'm that doing, transition for you? Actually, I didn't have a hard time at all because I got a job the next day. Come on with it. How did you do that? Not the next day. Got a job the next day because I had already determined and decided in my life, if you don't hire me, I'll hire you. You don't have to give me a job. I'll create a job, right? Yeah. Because I, you know, when I read the Bible, read the book of Genesis, God gave Adam a tree. He didn't give him a table or a chair. He built it from the tree. He gave him a tree. <laughs> he didn't give him a table or a chair. He didn't give him a bed. He just gave him a tree. Good job. Right? Yes, so life to me was, man, here's the tree. I'm going to look at it and I'm going to figure out how to give me a table, a chair, a car, a family, everything I'm going to extract out of there. All I need is a tree. Right. And we all have that when we come out. So I prepared myself in prison by running, running, educating myself. I took air conditioning refrigeration the last two years when I got in school. I got my GED. After getting my GED, I got in college. I took air conditioning refrigeration. I knew I needed a trade. Man, I'm going to tell you how crazy I picked the trade out. Let me tell you how I picked the trade out. So it's I, I hate heat. Like every my house stays on 68, 69. Right. You know, I, I decided it was so hot in prison. I said, man, if hell is this hot, if it's hotter than this, I better get saved. You know what I mean? <laughs> that place is horrible. So it was the summer and they had given me a two year serve on, meaning I would have to serve the last two years of my sentence. So I said, summertime, hot. So they get newspapers in there. I got the newspaper and I looked and said, OK, I need to find what is the greatest job demand when I get out of prison. My date of release was Juneteenth of all days. <laughs> Who would have figured that, right? Juneteenth, really? That's the day everybody parties, you know? I said, okay, I'm going to have a celebration on Juneteenth, but it's going to be different this time. So I looked in the newspaper and everything said air conditioning technician or air conditioning technician or air conditioning. I said, okay, I'm going to be an air conditioning technician, right? Feel everything out in college, got in college, man. Everything I did in there, I worked hard. I stayed after. I created a pattern and a habit for myself that I could carry on when I got out. So when I got out, when I got out of prison, the very next day, uh, that night I get to my mom's house, I open up the phone book and I find 10 places that were around her house that were in her zip code. And I knew I was going to go to those 10 places. So that morning I wake up 4.30, 4 o'clock. You know, they woke us up at 4 o'clock to feed your breakfast, which is crazy. So I took, if they wake me up at 4 o'clock here and I wake up at 4 o'clock when I get out, I've got a five-hour jump on the rest of the world because everybody else starts at nine, right? right. <laughs> I'm thinking, how can I get ahead, not just catch up, right? Said, okay. So even before they ever turned the lights on at four, I was already up and I've done 500 push-ups. Man, I'm in my mom's house. I get up. I do my 500 push-ups. It's four o'clock in the morning. I'm moving. I'm getting, getting my T-shirt on. I'm feeling good. My mom walks in. She says, what are you doing? I said, I'm getting ready to go get a job. She says, get a job. You just got out of prison. You've been in there six years. Just go lay down. I said, no, no, no. I'm going to go get a job. She saw how demanding I was, right? I said, Mom, I'm going to get a job today. She says, where are you going? I've already got the places. I've looked in the phone book. I know everywhere I'm going. She said, well, okay, let's just wait. I'll take it. I said, I don't need you to take me. I've been waiting six years for this opportunity. I don't need anything from anyone. I can go do this myself. So at 5 o'clock, 5.15-ish, I take off at my mom's house. I go to the first place around the corner, ESP air conditioning. It's on the same, same street. It's just a curve uh, on Arkansas Lane. So I go there. And I'm standing there, it's about 5.30, 5.40, something like that. This little bitty short white guy walks around the corner. It's nighttime now, right? And there are bushes right there. And he runs into me 
and I scared the crap out of right? <laughs> 240-pound black man. At 5.30 in the morning, I'm standing by the bushes. You know I scared him, right? <laughs> I'm like, I'm like, sir, it's okay. I'm just here to get a job. And he's like, get a job? He says, young man, it's 5.30 in the morning. I said, I know. He said, why don't you come back about 8? And um, my secretary's be here. We are hiring. I said, no, I'm going to wait right here because I, I read the first impressions to last throughout the day, so I don't want anyone to ruin my opportunity to work for you. Now I got his attention. He's looking at me like, this cat's different. He says, give me a few minutes. Goes in, he comes back out and gets me about five, you know, maybe 10, 15 minutes later. He says, now, why are you here so early? So I said, well, look, the first thing you need to know is I just got out of prison. There's no one that you have that can outwork me, smarter than me, has more integrity or dignity that would be more of an asset to your company than me. Six o'clock that morning, I was working on my first crew. What did I do? I sold myself and I made him realize if I don't hire this dude, he's a superstar. He's going to go across the street. My competition is going to hire him, right? So what did I do? I not only sold myself, but I believed in myself. There were times, there have been times, and there still are times when we have to encourage ourselves. Because if nobody else believes in you, you got to believe in you. It doesn't matter who believes in me. I believe in me. 30 days later, I was running my own crew. 60 days later, I was running all of the crews. Because when these guys at six o'clock in the evening, when we turn in and we're done, six o'clock, seven o'clock, everyone would rush, leave stuff everywhere. And they take off to go to the bar to go have a drink, right? They've been in the Maddox all day. I just wanted some water. And then I would stay after work like I did when I was in prison. And I clean all the tools up. And then I line all the tools up by the doors. So when the guys back the trucks up, they can grab everything, put it on, and they can go. So he comes out and he says, Williams, why do you stay here every day and do that? And you're not on the clock. I said, because employees spend 50% of their time looking for something that's not where it's supposed to be. And I want to make sure we're the number one air conditioning company in the BFW area. He's like, okay, I like that. So 90 days, he pulls me in his office. He says, hey, I see how you're running the cruise meetings and a great job. I'd like to take you on some sales meetings. I said, okay. And he did because I was able to articulate my communication skill was good. That was good. I never said this, but I think it's very, very important because this is why I'm school choice. So even though I grew up in the hood, I went to school in the neighborhood. Are you with me? So there were four streets in my community that integrated into Arlington schools, which is well, my school is like 95, 98% white when I went there. So I grew up in the hood, but those four streets bust me to the neighborhood. So it allowed me to learn how to move very fluently in a room full of all white people. And I never knew they were all white because I grew up with that. And then I could move in the room full of all black people because I grew up with all black people as well. So God put me in a position to where I was diversified in my communication. You know, it's like Moses. Moses was born a Hebrew. He was raised Egyptian, meaning that he was too much of a Hebrew to be an Egyptian, but he was too much of an Egyptian to ever be a Hebrew. Does that make sense? So God could allow him to be used at that capacity because he understood both sides. So this guy takes me, man. We're doing all that. Six months later, I started my own company a logistics company. First year out of prison, I made $120,000, six figures. Second year, I made two thirty. dollars My fourth year out of prison, I made $1.3 million, right? <laughs> now, my third, year, my third year out, I got engaged to a judge. I met her at a picnic, okay? Met her at a picnic with a police officer, a detective, not a detective, but he was a jump out boy. He worked for the DA in Fort Worth. He took me to a picnic because we started talking again. He took me, takes me to a picnic. So I'm at a picnic with all police officers, and judges and prosecutors, I meet a judge and we get engaged, right? I go down the same, at around the same time, and I go down Grand Prairie to, so I learned a handshake and speech, you know, 180 degree angle symbolizes friendship, 
Then you do human touch, shoulder, arm, whatever. If it's a man or woman, you touch everyone differently. But to the psyche, it says friendship, right? Because as, as human beings, a touch is very important to our psyche, right? So I, so I, I practiced this handshake for Detective Allen Pat. I go down to the police station, and he was on my heart the whole time I was in prison. The detective who sent me to prison. I go down, they call him out. This is like three years after prison. Comes out, and he's walking towards me. And I wave my hand so he would, so he would, you know, like, I'm the guy calling you out, you know. So he's walking up. You know, he's got this little wobble walk, you know, Alan, man, great guy. He's walking up, and he starts going a little slower. I said, okay, he recognizes me. So I put my hand out so he can see my handshake. Comes up, and he grabs my hand. He's shaking my hand. I put, him on, put my hand on this, on this, this other hand on top of his. He says, uh, he says, do I know you? I said, yeah. I said, I'm Keenan Williams. You sent me to prison about seven or eight years ago. <laughs> His heart starts beating in my hand. He don't know what I'm there to do. I'd be there to kill him, you know? <laughs> so I said, but I'm here to thank you because what you did changed my life. This dude breaks down in tears in the middle of the police station. People everywhere, he's crying. And then I start crying with him. I don't even know why he's crying. I just start crying with him. You know? He says, I got to show you something. So he takes me upstairs. And I'm going through the police station with no handcuffs on for the first time in my life, right? And all these police officers have been a part of arresting me those 45 times. They're seeing me. They're like, it's Keenan Williams. He takes me to his desk, opens his computer. He was typing his resignation. This is a two, this, He was typing his resignation. He said, I was getting ready to resign because I didn't think that anyone cared about the job that I was doing. Wow. Alan worked for another 15 years. Wow. We never know. Yeah. So important to mend those broken relationships or those people that we've heard in the past. And so I made it a point while I was in prison to say, I'm going to go and say, I'm sorry to everyone I could ever think of that I've ever heard because what I did, I'm really sorry. And it wasn't. So Alan and I, he's one of my best friends. Now we've been best friends since two, uh, 2001, 23 years. We've done documentaries together. We've been on news stations together. We've been in prisons together. We've been in schools together, teen challenge together, speaking. It's pretty cool when you see an ex-felon and, and the detective who said walk on stage and get God on the floor, right? You know, so anyway, so I thank him. I get engaged to judge man. And over the next few years, you know, millionaire, went broke, entrepreneur, didn't even know I was an entrepreneur, started several companies. Uh, and then I started uh, started speaking and because I thought it was very important to go in and start talking to people about the laws that I learned. You know, I learned the law of subtraction. I didn't tell you. I, love, I learned the law of honor. Law of honor is real critical here. Okay, honor ushers in the presence of God in any situation. Dishonor disincludes God. Mm. God said, honor your mother and your father. With that, you'll have a long life. That's the first commandment of promise. So I learned to honor my mother and my father. I watched Joseph, how he honored the guards. He honored the king. And because he did, it said everyone that they sent into the prison, they trust, they gave them to Joseph because they trusted that he would teach them the protocol of the prison. Because Joseph learned how to honor. Honor creates an opportunity or will open doors that your gift will not. So I learned the law of honor in prison. I honored inmates. I honored the wards. I honored the guards. I said, yes, sir. No, sir. Thank you for the work that you're doing. It's amazing what happens when you start honoring people around you. It creates an atmosphere of honor because God gets involved. You know, and then I learned the law of place. The law of place is very important. I won't go along into the law of place. But God taught me all these laws. You know, it's important to know that you've been designed and whoever's watching this, you've been designed to be somewhere, but not everywhere. You can be successful somewhere, but you can't be successful everywhere. 
And so I learned that regardless of how much I learned in prison, my success in prison was limited. And even out here, I've learned if I'm in the wrong place, the gift that God put in me will not be appreciated. It'll only be tolerated, right? You got to be where your gift is being appreciated and not tolerated. Even Jesus himself, I guess it's okay to talk about Jesus because that's what I talk about, right? Even Jesus himself could not be successful in his own hometown. Remember, he had to leave. Why? Why? Because they didn't honor him. His gift was not appreciated there. It's called the law of place. You know, lately I've just been teaching a lot about the right seed, wrong place. Sometimes we can be there. You are the right seed, but maybe you're just planted in the wrong place. Maybe you're in the right seed, wrong soil. Right seed, wrong soil. Doesn't mean that the soil is bad. It just means that your seed is no good in that soil, right? I had to learn that. I had to learn those things. I had to learn the law of the seed. I had to convince myself and I convince people every day. You are born with everything that you need inside of you to be successful. Let me ask you this. So when you were in prison, did you even then imagine that you would get into the political arena or become a- I'm glad you asked me that question because I didn't share that. Yes. And this is why. In 1996, when I saw that Joseph went from the prison to the palace, God gave me revelation. I heard a voice. Maybe it was my own voice. And it was this. If Joseph went from the prison to the palace, you can go from the prison to the White House. And I said, man, I'm going to the White House. When I said that, that helped me to start prepare, making preparation in everything that I did to understand the protocol of the White House. My walk, my talk, my thinking, my integrity, the way I ate at the table. How do I stand with dignitaries? How do I conduct myself? Because the way you conduct yourself on one level is different from the way you have to conduct yourself on another level. Sure. What works here doesn't work there, right? So you got to know what works there. In 1986, I said that. And in 2017, I went to the White House for the first time and started working for President Trump. I was at first only ex-felon in the history of the United States to be the strategic director for a campaign of the president of the United States. I became a surrogate for the president. I traveled and spoke for him. White House clearance, Secret Service clearance, only one in the world that has ever happened to in the United States of America. People laughed at me in 1996. Man, you ex-felon, you going to the White House? I don't know. I can't explain all that to you. All I know is I know what I heard and I know what I'm doing to prepare for that moment. And in 2017, I was hired by President Trump and I've been in the White House tons of times. Now I, I counsel Congress. I sit on board of directors. Uh, I started the workforce readiness program. Uh, I sit on the board to start that. Everybody knows about that around the country now. I actually started the workforce program. I sat in the room with 25 people that are all smarter than I and we correlated, coordinated the Readiness Workforce Program. Actually, I had forgotten about that until I found my freaking award and certificate that they gave me from the Department of Energy and the the White House for being a part of that that group that started the Readiness Workforce Program. Yes, I've been blessed. My point to that is this. All things are possible through Christ and nothing is impossible unless you believe that it's impossible. Mm. Education will be the key to everyone's success. You got to get educated, not only educated in who everyone else is, but you got to become educated in who you are. Because if you don't believe in you, mm-hmm. how can you expect for someone else to believe in you? You know, I, I, I'm someone who's in long term recovery, and I we know- go to reco- let's go to recovery. Let's go to recovery. I got I got to say that I'm glad you said that, right? Because yeah. this is recovery, right? Yeah. Now I, I have a little. I have a different. I have a different perspective of recovery. Doesn't make yours bad or anyone else's bad. I'm glad you brought that up. Very, very important. Because this is for someone who's watching. They may be like me. I never went into recovery. I went into being recovered. I stepped right into being recovered. And this is the difference for me. 
I took on a new identity of who I was and left behind who I was not. You, I can't be in recovery from someone that I'm not. Does that make sense? I can track and trace every drug problem to a low self-esteem and an identity crisis in every person. So if you change your identity, you change who you were or who you were and, to, and start living into who you are. You can't be tempted by who you were. If I don't like broccoli, you can't tempt me with broccoli. <laughs> Does that make sense? I don't like no llama beans. I don't like chitlins. I don't eat that crap. You can't tip me no chitlins. I go to Del Frisco's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it was one step with me, man. Look, I had a dream in prison. And uh, you know how when you're on drugs, you dream about drugs. You guys ever done that? Absolutely. Dream about smoking crack cocaine, starting cocaine. You know, people that are on drugs do it. Alcohol doesn't matter. This is where I knew it was an identity problem. I had a dream and I had crack cocaine in my hand and I'm looking at it. And I said to crack cocaine, you can't walk, talk, or think for yourself. You have no conscience. You have no mind. You don't even know you exist. I'm created out of the image and likeness of God. I'm a son. The book of Psalms called me a little God. I can do all things through Christ. And I said, whoa, now, how could something so small control someone so big? I took the crack cocaine, threw it on the ground, and I stepped on it. And I heard a voice say to me, now you've become greater than what was greater than you. Hmm. I haven't had a drug or drink since 1993, not even a desire to do it. One step, new identity, recovered, no recovery. Unfortunately, I think when you're in recovery, there's always a possibility of a relapse. But when you're living in being recovered, you can't relapse from what you're not anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. That's how I think. It's made all the difference. I haven't had a drink since 1993. Yeah. I haven't had a joint. None. I'm not tempted by those things because that's not who I am anymore. Yeah. It's all about an identity crisis. It's all about dealing with that low self-esteem. Everything can always be traced to those two things, an identity crisis and low self-esteem. Does that make sense? When we deal with that, it makes the recovery a whole different perspective because now you look at it like, okay, that's someone who I would never be. That's not who I am anymore. You can't tempt me with who I'm not. You can only tempt me with who I am. So it's the way we think about these things makes a huge difference because a lot of times we bring, we can position ourselves in an awkward position because we're still not thinking that we're whole. Why not just be whole? <laughs> in, the, in the big book, it talks about we realize we, we know only a little that God yeah. will constantly disclose more to you and to us as we trudge this road to happy destiny. So de happy destiny does come and it's the 12 steps isn't the only route to get you there. Thank you so, for saying that. Yes. Support, um, all types of recovery. And um, we make sure that we advocate for people for different, you know, decisions that people make about <laughs> their own personal recovery and support them in their recovery. Even here, that's what we make sure that we do. Which is important. Listen, I don't, I do not knock 12 step programs. Sure. It's whatever works for you. It's worked for you for some time now. How, how many years? 30 years, man. That's that's something to be said. Very Listen, it's tried, true, and proven. I'm just saying it was one step and just I was recovered. I was done. I didn't have to struggle with anything. I don't have to read any more books on it, but but I still read books. Sure. And, and my recovery was learning how to think differently about myself because the Bible, Proverbs says, so is a man thinking, so is he. Do you still practice um, things to this day to, to keep you grounded? Of course. What type of? It's not even really more. It's not even really a practice anymore. It's more of a character. Because it's something when you practice it long enough, it becomes who you are anyway. The practice is only when you're trying to get there. 
But there are still stages that I have to go through and say, okay, I don't know this. Now I need to study this. Now I need to study that. Now I need to become, there's always a, there's always more to learn. You know, I believe in staying coachable, trainable, and teachable. I don't know everything. I know a small bit. Sure. But what I do know is what I share with people. I know that you can live and not have to worry about drugs and alcohol another day in your life. I know that. I know you can sit in bars. I mean, I go to, man, I go everywhere, right? I've been around everything. I'm not moved by because that's not who I am anymore, right? I know that there's something that he taught me in that, that I can teach someone else. But again, you got to do what works for you. The Bible says all good and perfect gifts come from above. That means there's a good gift and then there's a perfect gift. When it comes to recovery, when it comes to being recovered, drugs and alcohol, he just gave me the perfect gift, man. It was just one and done. I took one step in him and there was nothing else. Does that make sense? But if it's the good gift you're living in, man, enjoy the goodness of it. It's okay. It's okay. I I encourage that. It, it's so enjoyable and moving as the listener to hear a story of transformation and to hear from someone who has taken so much time to to learn about themselves and be able to articulate their story. It's awesome. Much appreciated. appreciated. Much appreciated. I learned from you guys. I learned from you. I learned from everybody. I learned what I don't want and what I do want. Every single day. I promise you I do. So I have two last sort of uh, summation questions. One is we covered a lot. Is there a a talking point that we didn't hit on? Is there something else you just feel like it's important for listeners to know about you or know about something? You know, yeah, I want to say that. Please understand that success, success is not a place. It's a journey. Hmm. Success is not a place. It's a journey. Perfection is not a place. It's a journey. Sometimes we try to hit that place of protection, perfection because we see people who pretend to be perfect. And then that puts you on that treadmill of perfection. And guess what happens when you're on the treadmill? You're tired. You get tired. You don't fall off. You don't hurt yourself. You don't turn that sucker off. Take your own pace. Trust God. Trust who you are becoming. Because we're st- I'm still becoming who God has called me. I haven't figured that stuff out, man. I don't know everything. I'm still learning every single day. Matter of fact, I see another level. And now I'm saying, God, show me how to get there. And I'm willing to sacrifice. Where there's sacrifice, there's always fire. Obedience is sacrifice. Wherever there's a sacrifice, there's always fire. God expects us to bring the sacrifice and he'll bring the fire. Are you with me? So I'm at a place now, right now, where I'm saying, God, I'm willing to sacrifice whatever it takes. I'm willing to cut off, cut out of my life. I'm willing to put on whatever that new wardrobe looks like to go where you want me to go. I see it. I can't talk about it, but I know where it's at. So that's what I'm working on right now. Every day, it's just a learning process. But I, I want to encourage people to know that, you know, failure is not, and we've heard it so many times, failure does not mean that you failed. You know, you got to decide what you're going to identify with. Are you going to identify with your failure? Or are you going to identify with being a new creature? Even when you make a mistake and you're walking this walk out, and you do something, some people will relapse. Some people will mess up and go have a beer. Okay, listen, if you feel bad about it, that means that's not who you are. Hmm. See, I see what you did, but I hear who you are because you just confessed that you felt bad about it, right? And sometimes our heart and our heads are in different places. We got to get that heart and head level to where it lines up, and only God can do that. Hmm. And all things are possible. There's nothing that anyone's been through, no situation so bad. That, that we've been through that we can't recover, not only recovered from, but we can't overcome. 
Because we live in America and the Constitution is here, we all have a right to pursue life, liberty, and happiness. There's nothing that takes us out of that constitutional right, right? It's all about what you want in life. How high do you want to go? What do you want to achieve? I'm going to tell you, I want to be the, I'm going to run for Congress and I'm going to win. And I'm going to be the first ex-felon to ever be a congressman. And I'm going to change some laws that are applicable to those that are, in, that are struggling with mental awareness, those that are struggling with, with, with prison. I'm going to change some laws on these places, these apartment complexes that say you can't live here. I got guys calling me that committed a felony 20 years ago. An apartment complex turns them down. So you're going to make this guy pay for a debt that he's already paid for? That's unconstitutional. You're going to tell him he can't live in a better place for him and his family for something that he did 10 years ago? That's a whole decade. You know what changes in 10 years? We go through three presidents in 10 years or three terms. You know, we're talking about a whole decade. People have died. People have been born. And you're still holding this man for who he was and not for who he is. I'm going to change that. Beautiful. So last question. Are there any uh, upcoming speaking engagements or publications you have or something you want? You know what? Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Uh, June the 5th, I'm doing a golf tournament for Bill Glass Ministries, the ministry that I was saying. So (laughs) it's crazy, right? So I preached at a church about four, five, about five years ago at a Pastor Jay McFadden. Now we had a great time, great time. We became friends. I've never went back and dealt with Bill Glass Ministries, the ministry that I that impacted my life to where I was sitting. Right? I dealt with a whole lot of other ministries. Reached out to his ministry a few years ago. Nobody responded. I just kept going. Right? It's like, okay, I don't need you. I'm just reaching out to you because I want to see if we can do something. I'm good. Okay, I don't need anything that you have. Right? So Jay calls me uh, a few months ago and says, hey, man, I just took on a new position with this ministry and this is this. And he literally calls me the same day that I was saved in prison. And he's working for Bill Glass Ministries as a director. I said, there's no way you work for Bill Glass. He said, yes. And I, they said, we need to get platform guests. And I thought about you. I said, man, you're not going to believe this. Right? That's the ministry that impacted my life. So on June the 5th, they're having a golf tournament with uh, all of the powers that be, and it's a big fundraiser. And yeah. so I'm going to go out and I'm going to do some golf, but I'm going to speak for Bill Glass Ministries. And then next month, I'll start getting on the platforms and speaking for the ministry. So, so we'll include all of those details in the um, description of this podcast. It'll be included in various social media posts. So that's good to know about. Thank you. Thanks for listening to A Way Through, brought to you by Archway Academy. Enjoying this conversation? We kindly invite you to subscribe to A Way Through wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For more episodes like this, visit us on archwayacademy.org backslash podcast. Are you a medical professional and would you like to join this conversation around teen health and recovery? Or are you a parent with a teen struggling with addiction? You can visit our website at archwayacademy.org to schedule a tour to visit our school. Thanks for listening to today's show. This is A Way Through.